Alex Meyer is a nine-year-old boy who lives right outside of Fort Myers, Florida. It was about a year ago that Alex was diagnosed with a brain tumor. It was cancer about the size of a golf ball and it was located right by the two optic nerves and where they cross. He had started affecting his eyesight. Needless to say, when the family found out what was going on, they were devastated. But the doctor said that there were different treatments that they wanted to try. And so they were starting to go to the hospital and have these treatments. Alex was going to be having a birthday. His mother had rented a, a bounce house to have out in the backyard. And so while he was having a treatment, she went to go to one of the, where she had rented this. And she explained to the lady what was going on and why they didn't feel like they should be renting a bounce house right now for him to be out playing with this tumor they have discovered. Well, the lady who had rented the bounce house to them was so moved by the story and by Alex and his family that she decided she wanted to do something about it. So she went on her Facebook page and talked about Alex, how he was this nine-year-old boy. He wanted to grow up and be a policeman because he wanted more police out there doing good things to help people. That was his spirit. And so she said, maybe we could put together a, a car parade. Here's when he's going to be having his treatment next time. If you'd be willing to participate, we could come by the hospital and have a parade to encourage Alex. Well, she had hoped that a few cars might show up. But actually what happened was, the police department decided to get involved and show up with cars and lights flashing. The fire trucks decided they would come and they had all kinds of firefighters. The local motorcycle club decided to turn out with all these motorcycles. The neighborhood turned out. They had a hundred plus vehicles coming by where people would be holding up signs and lights flashing, all kinds of things to, to encourage Alex as he had to fight this battle. The family was so grateful. It was so meaningful for them. Alex continued to go on through his treatments throughout all of last year. Then, of course, the pandemic set in, and it was so very hard. It was actually near the end of October, 1st of November. Alex was at the hospital to be having a treatment, and he overheard one of the nurses saying how because of the pandemic, you didn't have all these people coming to the hospital and the toy closet for children was almost empty. And Alex started thinking about all these kids who would be in the hospital here on that cancer floor coming to Christmas and there would be no toys. And he decided he wanted to do something about that. So he talked to his parents about it and he set a goal and said he was going to get a thousand toys donated. Now that's kind of a big goal, but he was going to do a thousand toys to get donated. And so he started talking to family and friends and all the circles that they knew people, and people started sharing toys. He collected 250 toys um, by near the 1st of December, and I mean, they were already in the house trying to um, sort them, and they were going to haul them to the hospital. Well, a news station heard about what he was doing, and they came out and did a story on him, and he talked about why he wanted to do this. Well, when that went out, people picked it up and started putting it on their Facebook page. It went viral, and people started sending in toys. 
and before they knew it, they'd collected a thousand toys and then 2,000 toys and then 3,000 and then 4,000 and then 5,000 toys coming in from all over the United States to be able to help Alex accomplish his goal of wanting to bless these children. And so he would always take a picture of the toys when they arrived and then he would uh, email it back to them saying thank you and you have all these pictures of Alex hauling all these toys into the hospital. They knew that they didn't have to just limit it now to the oncology floor. They could do it for any children throughout the entire hospital. And so I saw an interview with him. And the interviewer was asking him, they said, how are you doing with your own struggle and health? And Alex said, well, to tell you the truth, it's pretty hard. It's really hard. Having cancer sucks. He said, it is a struggle. But you know, I got to thinking about all the kids who would love to have a toy. And let me tell you, if you put a smile on a child's face, it just does something to your own heart. And so I'm asking you, will you give a toy to put a smile on a child's face? I know what it does for me. He was so excited in the midst of his own struggle to be reaching out to share God's love, putting a smile on these other children's faces. And I thought, you know, that's really the hard thing to do. When you find yourself in one of those difficult moments when it really is hard, when you really find yourself asking the question, why? Why is this happening to me? And there is no answer. Feeling like this isn't fair and you can't do anything about it. When you find yourself in those kinds of places, just like Alex, it's hard to turn your attention to share love with somebody else. And yet that's the very thing that'll continue to lead us into life. This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, Love Without Exception. We're looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the 13th chapter. We said we're going to look at it for seven weeks. For seven weeks, we're going to go through 1 Corinthians verse by verse by verse, one at a time, to try to see what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and what Paul is saying to you and to me. We've looked at this issue that the Corinthians were living in a time when they were so very divided. They were becoming disrespectful towards one another. They were arguing. They were splintering, arguing, should we be speaking in tongues? Who's the most important? Do you speak in tongues? Is it prophecy or if it's a teacher or preacher? The rich and the poor were becoming divided towards one another over generosity. And so Paul writes this chapter to try to reset the people in Corinth. But it's not just the struggles they're having with themselves, it's also the struggles they have in the world. Remember, they were living in the time when Rome controlled their world. Life was cheap. And life was not fair. Things could happen in a moment and you couldn't do anything about it. Paul knew that. He understood it. It's the world they were living in. And so he's trying to get them to reset to say, 
you know, you and I are called to live in a spirit of love with one another and in this world where we're trying to find our way, where it's divisive and argumentative and unfair. No, he's trying to get them to reset. And Paul today makes the statement and says, sometimes you see in a mirror dimly. Sometimes we only know in part. One day we shall see face to face. One day we shall be, we will know fully as we have been fully understood. But in the meantime, can we stay focused and be able to continue to love even in the most difficult of times? That's not always an easy thing to do, but it is the thing that leads us to life because love never ends. So what is Paul trying to say to the Corinthians today? What is Paul saying to you and me? I just want to lift up two ideas. First of all, I think Paul is trying to say to us how important it is that when you're in that moment when life is hard and it's unfair and you're asking the question why and there is no answer, you keep on loving. Don't let your heart grow cold. Don't let your spirit become hard. You keep on loving. Because in those moments when you're looking into a mirror dimly, when you only understand in part, if you keep on loving, it gives meaning to your suffering. It helps you in the difficult moments like that. You know, I remember an interview that I saw with Tom Clancy. You remember Tom Clancy? Such an incredible author. Back in 1984, his first book, Hunt for Red October, came out. And then there was one right after another, Clear and Present Danger and, and the Patriot Games. And 17 different novels would come out with huge success. Tom Clancy passed away back in 2013, eight years ago, from a heart attack. He was only 66 years old. But I remember seeing the interview. It took place back in 1990. And... It was an interview in which he said, you know, I don't hang out with sick people because it really makes me sad. And I don't go to funerals because they make me feel so bad. And I was rather taken back when I heard him talking about that. But then he went on in the interview and he talked about a, a boy named Kyle, six years old. It was Kyle who had written Tom Clancy in a letter and he just said, you know, my grandfather is reading me all your books. He reads me your books and I enjoy them so much and so I just wanted to write to you and tell you how much I enjoyed them. And I decided to do it now because I've been diagnosed with cancer. Well, there was something about the letter that really touched Tom and he answered, Kyle, he wrote him back. And then Kyle wrote him, and he, Tom wrote him back. And, and what Tom learned was that Kyle loved fighter jets. And so he had his assistant send him all kinds of posters of fighter jets to put up on his wall. And he loved them. And then the movie Hunt for Red October came out. And boy, Kyle really loved that. 
He went to go see the movie. He now had the dialogue down. He could recite the dialogue just like he was one of the characters. When Tom realized how much Kyle loved submarines and this show, you remember Hunt for Red October was about a submarine. In the end, he called his friends on the USS um, Dallas a submarine and asked if they would give a tour to Kyle and his family. And he got him a jumpsuit with his name on it. And so Kyle and his family went down and got to tour this submarine. Kyle got his own jumpsuit. I mean, can you imagine how cool that was? I mean, they were so pumped. They were so excited. And so Kyle called Tom, and they had such a good time talking. And so in a little while, Tom would call Kyle, and then Kyle would call Tom. And the good news is his cancer went into remission. But Kyle and Tom stayed in touch because it was so much fun to see what he was doing and being able to share in a wonderful way for this kid for two years. And then one day, Kyle got the message that the cancer was back, it was inoperable, and it would be terminal. So Make-A-Wish Foundation stepped in, asked Kyle what he wanted to do, and his answer was, go to Disney World. But he also then called Tom and asked, would you come to Disney World too? And boy, that's something Tom just didn't do. But he had grown so fond and so close to Kyle, he agreed. He cleared his calendar, flew down to Florida. And for a couple days, the parents kind of stepped back and let Tom take more of a lead so that he could be with Kyle. Kyle could be with his hero. Tom was pushing his wheelchair through the Magic Kingdom. They would go through the Magic Kingdom. They would go ride Space Mountain. I mean, they just had an incredible time. And then Tom flew home. But when he got back, he started calling Kyle every day. Every day. He didn't miss a day. The two of them would talk on the phone. Kyle continued to go downhill until finally he slipped into a coma and he passed away. And Tom Clancy made a decision that he never made. He decided he was going to go to the funeral. So again, he flew to the funeral, and he said, sure enough, when I got there and went to the funeral, just like I expected, I blubbered like a baby. I cried and cried and cried. It was so sad. And then he went to the graveside, and he cried and cried and cried. He was standing at the graveside with a couple of nurses who had been helping to take care of Kyle, and when the service was over, it was one of those who turned to him and said, how are you doing? And Tom said, I'm not doing well at all. This hurts so much. I will never do this again. And one of the nurses looked at him and said, but what of all the other sick children? What do you think Kyle would say to that? You know, you're nothing but a coward. And she turned and walked away. This man who's writing all these novels about our military and wars and all this kind of stuff, you're a coward. And Tom Clancy said, 
He stood there beside Kyle's grave and just stood there to think. And he said, I realized I was a coward. I was afraid to hurt again. It hurt so much. But then I thought, it has been bringing me so much joy to be able to do these nice things for Kyle that I knew was going to put a smile on his face and bring him such joy. It started giving such meaning to my life. It made my life feel significant. To love this boy like he was my own son, to be loved by him, what that did for my heart. He said, I stood there beside that grave and finally I decided there were more children to love. It changed the way that Tom Clancy would live the rest of his life to the day he died. We all have those times when because you have loved, you hurt those times when you're asking the question, why? This isn't fair. You wind up seeing in a mirror dimly. You know only in part. It doesn't make sense. But because of the love that God has shown to us, you believe that though you look in a mirror dimly, one day you will see face to face. And though you only know in part now, one day you will fully understand and you will be fully understood. Don't let your heart grow cold. When you find yourself in those difficult moments, when life is hard and unfair, don't withdraw, do not become hard. Remember, it was Christ who loved us enough to go to the cross. And He calls us to love one another, even when it is not easy and painful. But if we will love in those moments when life doesn't make sense, your life will find significance and meaning. And secondly, it's because Christ has loved us that you and I have found the courage to love others. And we love others in difficult circumstances and what we find is a strength from beyond ourselves and we find hope. When we face obstacles, when we face pain, when life is difficult, we find a strength from beyond ourselves and a hope we don't quit on life just because we see in a mirror dimly. We don't quit on life because we don't fully understand and it doesn't seem fair and we are hurting. No, you and I find the courage to keep on and we have strength and hope because we have been loved and we choose then to wind up loving others in those moments. Again, Paul was trying to say to those people in Corinth, look, we live in a difficult world, a world that is divisive, a world where bad things can happen. You ask why, and it isn't fair. 
And I can't always explain it and tell you. I'm just saying, if you will stay grounded in love, then you can live through these moments. It's like you and I living through a pandemic. We don't have all the answers. We don't know why. We don't know when we will get through it. It's like living through an economic crisis. It's like living in our country in the midst of all this political divisiveness. Don't let your heart grow hard. Don't become cold. Don't give in to anger. Don't give in to fear. Find the courage to continue to love. For if we love, we will find strength and hope. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I told you about Amanda Gordon, uh, Gorman. Amanda Gorman is an amazing young lady. She's 22 years old, just graduated from Harvard. She's African-American. And she is the first youth poet laureate to be named in America. And she was invited to come and to write and deliver a poem at the inaugural address, at Joe Biden's inauguration. She actually only had less than four weeks to write the poem and get prepared. But what an incredible honor. When she came and stepped up there to the podium, you know, when I saw her, I did not know who Amanda Gorman was. She looked 16 years old. She wore a beautiful, bright yellow blazer, a coat. And I, I looked at her, and like I said, I thought she was 16, and then I found out she was 22 years old. But boy, when she got up there, she took command. She owned that moment. She brought strength. If you have not heard her poem, The Hill We Climb, I encourage you, go online. You'll find it easily. It's five minutes. It's incredibly inspiring. And I encourage you to go listen to it. But Amanda Gorman, she, she turns out she has a fascinating life. She wound up being born out in L.A., and she describes herself as a skinny little black girl descended from slaves. Those are her ancestors. She can trace it. And with a single mom who's a sixth grade teacher. She has a twin sister and a brother. And it was her mom on their teacher's pay that was raising these three children. Well, needless to say, you know, life wasn't all that easy certainly not economically. They faced real challenges. And Amanda, well, she had an auditory problem, so sensitive to sound. She had a speech impediment. She would drop lots of letters. She could not say the letter R. Now, she had a lot of challenges that she would have to confront in her lifetime. And it was wonderful to discover how she was able to deal with them. You know, one of the things that made such a difference in her life was their family was very active in the Catholic Church. Her faith was very important to her. Growing up, she learned about the gift of God's grace in her life and what did it mean to be able to confront life in a hopeful and positive attitude rather than having to give in to anger and explode or give in to fear and fold. No, she was able to confront life she would ultimately be able to get a scholarship and she went to Harvard. There had been an interview in the Harvard Crimson and they were talking to her and, and it came up and she said that she does not, that Amanda does not view her speech impediment as a crutch. Rather, she sees it as a gift and a strength. 
to view her speech impediment as a gift and a strength. When you know what it means to be loved by God, you can do that. You find the courage to say, I'm still going to love people. I'm going to love life. I can take on the things that are the challenges. Now, she said she decided to become a poet when she was a young girl. She was reading a poem by Marianne Williamson. And she read the poem and was reading it out loud to her mom. And she was reading that famous line that said, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are more powerful beyond measure. She decided she was powerful beyond measure. That God was going to use her to do great things. And she would not be afraid, nor would she live her life being angry as she had to confront racism and prejudice and all the other challenges that came her way. But she lived in such a spirit. And so it was, she got the scholarship to Harvard. She worked on her speech impediment. Again, if you really get into Amanda, as I have, go back and listen to an interview with her as late as when she's 19 years old. And listen to the way she enunciates her words, her diction. And then listen to her at 22, just three years later. She talks about how she was still having to work so hard when she was in college to learn how to pronounce her words. One of the things she did was she would sing the song, Aaron Burr, Sir, from the musical Hamilton. And she'd try to keep up with Leslie Odom Jr., singing it right along with him, and believing if she could do that, she would learn how to pronounce the letter R. She has gotten so good. She's come on. She's continued to confront those things in life, believing what God can call her to do. So she's been reading all kinds of different poems. After she gave the inaugural address, I mean, things went crazy for her in the coming week. They just went crazy. She suddenly was on every talk show, every time you turned around, every news station. It was IMG, who is a modeling agency and an entertainment agency. They came to her and they signed her as a model. They felt she had really great fashion taste but also is this entertainer. And that's what she's really interested in. You see, she is a real social activist, believing she can help change the attitudes in this world and inspire other children to dream all the things that they can possibly do. She already has her eyes set on being president. She says, in 2036, I'll be old enough to run. You can already write it down. My name's going to be on that ballot. <laughs> that's the way she looks at life. Well, she has all these people responding. It turns out she's written three books. They haven't gone to print yet. She's been working on them, and one of them's going to be about this poem she wrote. And there's been such a selling of pre-orders that the publishing company has now agreed that each one of the three books is going to get a million copy first run because they know they're going to be sold out. They've already moved up to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Unbelievable. And she is so humble. And she is so kind. You feel this underlying spirit of, of faith, of hope, of love. I love the fact that, that she is able to say she wants to be realistic, 
but always hopeful. She wants to see things the way they are, but also see things the way they can be. And that's always underwritten with this spirit of love. Now, the fascinating thing is here she got to do the inauguration writing and giving that poem. Well, it just so happens today, Super Bowl Sunday, she's going to be performing at the Super Bowl. Now, I don't know that I've ever heard of a poet performing at the Super Bowl. You see, today when they come to the coin toss, they're going to have three people from across the country who who represent different Americans and what we've been doing and responding during the pandemic, showing how we're in this together, how we're loving each other. You're going to have these three people who are the honorary captains who are going to be a part of the coin toss today um, at the Super Bowl. You'll be watching. And so in the pregame show, they've asked Amanda, would you write a poem that tells each of these individual stories? So her responsibility is to write a poem that basically tells them, introduces them before they go on and, and wind up being these honorary captains at the coin toss. To be asked to do a poem at the Super Bowl. She was interviewed by Anderson Cooper. And Anderson Cooper was just talking about all these things that she was doing. And you know, you'd think, how do you feel the pressure when you're going to do an inauguration poem? You're going to be giving a poem at the Super Bowl. All these things she's been doing. He said, I heard that you have a, a mantra, something you say or do before you get up and, and you deliver a poem. Is that true? She said, yes. He said, can you share that with us? And she said, absolutely. She said, before I perform, when I did at the inauguration or at the Super Bowl, no, before I ever perform, I close my eyes and I say, I am the daughter of black writers who are descended from freedom fighters who broke their chains and changed the world. They call me. It is Christ who calls us. It is the saints on whose shoulders we stand who call us. It is our family and our friends who have loved us who call us. To be the people who have the courage in the midst of all the challenges, the pain, the problems, to be the people who choose to love. There will be times when we look in a mirror dimly. But we will see face to face. There are times when we know in part, but one day we will know fully and we will understand as we have been fully understood. You and I are called by all of those who have gone before us, by Christ, to be the people who choose to love. And that's because love never ends. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Amen.